looked at the Gospel of Mark, we see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is always moving. And it's action-packed, especially the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus did this, and then Jesus went here, and now Jesus is over here. And it's, it's the ADD version of Jesus. And he's always on the move. And I love that. And I love to see what Jesus is doing and the way, the way, the way that Mark lays it out. And, and as we've done through this whole series, we are going to bounce around to a couple of the other Gospels that are cooperating what Mark is laying out to us here. But uh, we're going to be in, in Mark chapter 15. Two weeks ago, Jared talked about what happened as Jesus was nailed to the cross and, and the last words of Jesus and his death there on the cross. And this week, we're going to really look at the burial of Jesus. Now, when we think about Jesus, and as we've looked at over the last several weeks, the last couple of months, as we've honed in on this final week of Jesus, um, we, we go back and we remember um, on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, um, you know, Jesus is seen as a superhero. I, I mean, the way that he comes in riding on that donkey and everybody, you know, shouting, Hosanna, 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 everybody was looking forward to that. And, and they really saw him as um, that comic book hero, superhero. How many of you are comic book fans? How many of you are superhero fans? Absolutely. Well, we love those. Now, originally, superheroes were just found in comic books, right? I mean, you didn't really hear much about the superheroes unless you were into comic books. And then all of a sudden, we have this bursting on the scene of all of these Coop, uh, Cooper comic book superheroes coming in. And it started with Iron Man, and then it came to Captain America, and then we had all of the Marvel Universe, and we have DC Comics, and all of those really just in our face all the time. So why is it that we love a superhero? What is it about a superhero that we love? Just a couple of things that I jotted down. Heroic figures provide examples of idealistic behavior. I mean, we see something in a superhero that that's what we truly want. We're drawn to their supernatural strength, their stunning skill at doing certain things. But I think when it really comes down to it, we long for wrongs to be made right. We love to see justice reign. We love to see good triumph over evil. And they give us hope. Even when we're feeling hopeless, superheroes can give us hope. They bring us that hope. And when we think of Jesus, he is our superhero. Because he always gives us hope. Even when he's hanging on the cross, there was hope. Now, not to many, right? I mean, Jesus was seen as a superhero as he rode into town on a donkey. But at the moment that he gets off the donkey, like that superhero status kind of went out the window because where does he go? Right to the temple. And then he's going to leave because he's sad. And then he's going to come back and he's going to like destroy the whole area as he starts flipping tables and, and all of that. And, and we see this kind of going out the window for Jesus. But in the final week of Jesus, he started off as a superhero, but that didn't last long. And again, two weeks ago, Jared shared with us the death of Jesus. He shared with us um, the, the final words of Jesus on the cross. Now Jesus has died. Jesus is hanging on the cross and he is dead. And we, we find and we're introduced to a man who is coming on a mission. He, he's part of a team of servants that were living on mission. 
We're going to talk about a guy named Joseph. We're going to talk about a guy named Nicodemus. And we're going to talk about two Marys. In general, we tend to focus more on the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? I mean, really, that's the important thing to us. But here's the thing, as we've read through the Gospel of Mark, and when we understand that all Scripture is God-breathed, we understand that it is all very, very important to us. And when we come to this, we need to understand that His burial is just as important as His death and His resurrection. We need to go back, and I talked about when Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the things that we needed to understand was our salvation was won right there because very easily he could have chosen to run. He could have went to Bethany. He would have seen all of those, those soldiers coming to get him, the torches in the night coming to get him, and he could have looked up and he could have said, I'm out. But yet Jesus chose to stay for us. So all of it is very vital and very important for us. According to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, his burial, his burial is significant enough to be included in the best summary statement that is given. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for us. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The burial is very, very important to us because here's the thing, we see a lot of people out there that want to debunk, that want to try to say, well, Jesus really didn't die. Well, yeah, maybe he died, but they went to the wrong tomb the next day. Uh, there's all kinds of, of theories out there to try to explain away that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. But what we see in scripture is that Jesus did in fact die and that he was buried. And that's what I want us to dig into. So Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So if we just start right there, the Jews recognized two evenings. The first started around 3 p.m. and it went until about 6 p.m. And then that was the second evening from 6 p.m. until sunrise the next morning. Since it is now about 3 in the afternoon on Friday, Sabbath, Saturday was set to begin very soon. So they had to move extremely quickly to make sure that everything happened. The day of preparation is the day when all preparations were made to be completed before the Sabbath. Any work that you wanted to do had to be completed by 6 p.m., and if it wasn't completed, you couldn't do it. It wasn't like, oh, I'll just work a little bit. No, absolutely not. Uh, when I was still in college, one of the churches that I went to was in my hometown, and I was an intern there. And while I was interning there, uh, we were meeting at a Seventh-day Adventist church who was very strict with the Sabbath rules. Well, because we were coming in and we were meeting on Sunday, we had to come in every evening. We had to put out our own hymnals. Yes, we it was that long ago, okay, so I, I'm starting to get old. Um, but we, we, we had to take out their hymnals. We had to take our hymnals and put them inside. We had to set all of the things up. All of the stage had to be set up. But here's the thing. We couldn't arrive until after 6 o'clock because we had to make sure that everything was, was taken care of. And it was sunrise before we could actually start preparing for Sunday worship. So the day of preparation, everything had to be prepared at that time. According to John chapter 19, verse 31, this Sabbath was also a high day. 
Why was this? It was a high day because it was the Passover. So all of this is very, very important for us. The verse establishes a sense of urgency. It establishes for us explaining why quick action had to take place. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read a little bit of a, a backstory as well for, for why all of this had to happen so fast. And you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. You see, if Jesus' body is to be removed, it has to be done very, very urgently so it can be prepared and it can be placed in the tomb before 6 p.m. All of this had to happen before the day was over. Now in verse 43, we're, we're introduced to a man. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Let's just get a little bit of background of who Joseph is. Well, where is he from? Well, Joseph is from Arimathea, absolutely. He lived 20 miles um, northwest of Jerusalem. Well, we're given his name and his hometown, and I believe Mark does it for a very specific reason. You see, he gives us this information so the people that were still alive could verify who he was and what he had done. They can verify and confirm all of these details. So we're given his name. We're also told who he was. Well, we're given some clues about Joseph's character in the next uh, part of verse 43. A respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. So what do we know about him? Well, what we know about him is he is respected. Joseph was known as a respected member of the council, which means that he was noble. He was well-formed. He was a member of the Jewish Supreme Court. Luke 23, verse 50 tells us that he was good and righteous. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 refers to him as, as rich. Luke 23, 51 indicates that while he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and this is very, very important, while he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he had not consented to their decision and action. What decision and action was that? To kill Jesus, absolutely. He had abstained from that part of it. So we know about Joseph that he was respected. We also know that he was spiritual. He was looking and longing for the kingdom of God, which shows us that there was more to this life. He saw that there was more to this life than just what was happening. In John chapter 19, verse 38, it describes him as a disciple of Jesus. But up until this point, and we're going to talk about this here more in detail at the end when we talk about our, talk about our action steps, when we understand who he was, he was a disciple of Jesus, but he could be seen as a closet Christian. His faith up until this point was kind of quiet. We really don't hear much about him before this point. But what we find out at this point is that he's courageous. Joseph gathers up the courage to go before Pilate. The, the word means not to dread, but to be bold. This was a very, very bold move on his part for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was a part of the Sanhedrin. What did the Sanhedrin just do? They just came to Pilate and said, you need to kill him. 
And so that could have gotten him in trouble in a, by itself, even though he wasn't a part of that committee that decided that we needed to do this, he was still lumped in. But not only that, he was also connecting him with Jesus. What did Pilate just do to Jesus? He killed him. So he, in, in two different ways, was putting his life on the line. There wasn't much that he was going to get in return for all of this. But he took courage, and he went to Pilate, and he asked for his body. One of the things that we need to understand in all of this, because he went and asked for the body, he went and talked to a pagan leader. That would make him ceremonially unclean. He then was going to touch a dead body. That was going to, that was going to deny him worship because he was ceremonially unclean. Yet he chose to do so. It really tells us about who Joseph is. He was courageous. You see, by making this request, he was openly confessing his personal loyalty to Jesus. It put his career in jeopardy as well. Again, when you think about it, there was nothing for Joseph to get out of this deal. But he did what he did out of love. He did what he did out of honor for Jesus. So as we continue looking at who Joseph is, now we look at what Joseph did. What does Joseph do here? He goes and he asks for the body of Jesus. The first thing they did, look at verse 43, and he asked for the body of Jesus. Now, the King James Version says that he craved the body of Jesus. Now, if you say that you crave something, what's that mean? You want it really bad. Now, not too many of us are going to use that word for a dead body. But that tells us the importance. That tells us how much this meant to Joseph, that he was going to do what he did. He didn't just ask. It meant that he went and he eagerly wanted to honor Jesus in this way. Bodies were normally just left to hang on the cross. Bodies would just decompose hanging on the cross until they needed the cross again. And the ravens would come, and the birds would come, and the, you understand where I'm going with that, okay? And when they did take the body down, it wasn't put into a grave. Because Jesus was hung with criminals, right? Well, what they would do is they would just take them and throw them in the dump. Gehenna. Gehenna is one of the words that we get hell from. An everlasting fire. A fire that is not put out. And so they would just take the bodies, they would take them off the cross, and they would just throw them in the city dump to be burned. But you see, Joseph didn't want that. Joseph wanted to honor Jesus in this way. Now, the word for body, Joseph goes and asks for the body of Jesus. Very tender, respectful. But when we go to verse 45, Pilate has a different word to use here. Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. Simply put, the Roman officials would never have released the body unless they knew for sure that it was dead. They wanted to know that Jesus was dead. They had proof that Jesus was dead. So what does Joseph do? He goes and he asks for the body 
of Jesus. Now we're going to come back to Joseph in a second. Now we need to see what Pilate's response to all of this is. This triggers uh, a request of a process for Pilate. We see this in verses 45 through 44, or 44 through 45. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now what do we see from Pilate in this circumstance? Number one, he was surprised that Jesus was already dead. This tells us the brutality in the way in which Jesus died. It tells us that that flogging that Jesus had already went through, that beating to try to just appease the Jews, how bad it was for Jesus. Most of the time, these criminals would hang for two days, three days, sometimes longer before they would actually die. But not in this case. He was astonished. And here's the thing, when we think that Jesus died physically, think of the torment that was upon Jesus as he was hanging on the cross before he died. Because just before he died, all of our sins landed directly upon him. The amount of pressure that Jesus was under physically, emotionally, and spiritually was just too much. So Pilate, he was astonished. He was surprised that Jesus was dead. Number two, he investigated his death though. He was going to make sure that Jesus was dead. Pilate wants to make sure that Jesus is dead. He summons the centurion and he gets the details. By the way, the death of, of Jesus was not disputed by anyone who witnessed the, the crucifixion. Not one person said, ah, I don't think he's really dead. No, they all knew, they all saw Jesus die. And then he verified his death. So he talks to Centurion as a Roman military officer who served as both executioner and coroner. He verifies his death. And listen, remember, they were very good at what they did. The Romans really understood pain and torture and death. It's not something the Centurion would have went, oh, oops. No, he knew what he was doing. He knew that Jesus was dead. So he verifies it, and then he grants the dead body of Jesus to Joseph. The word granted means that he gave as a gift without requiring a fee. It's notable that, that Pilate did this because those guilty of treason were not permitted a regular burial. I wonder if this was Pilate's way of saying that he never really believed that Jesus was guilty. Now, I don't know that. But in a normal circumstance... This is not something that would have just happened. So let's compile the evidence. Let's understand for sure again that Jesus, in fact, died. Mark chapter 15, verse 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Mark chapter 15, verse 39 says that the centurion saw that he breathed his last. Mark chapter 15, verse 44, uses the phrase, already died, twice. And in Mark 15, verse 45, it says that the centurion confirmed that he was dead, and Pilate granted the corpse to Joseph. 
We jump to John chapter 19, verses 33 through 34. It describes how their professional executioners broke the legs of the other two criminals so that they would suffocate and die eventually on the cross. But when the soldiers, they came to Jesus, what happened? One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Again, if you've ever seen a spear of a Roman, they were very good. And with all of the pain that Jesus had already went into, all of the suffering that he went into, a spear entering into your body, again, you're not going to live after that happens to you. And at once there came out blood and water. You see, these professional executioners, they knew that Jesus was dead. But they made sure by sticking a razor-sharp spear through his side, into his lung, and into his heart. Amazing that this fulfills multiple prophecies laid out to us in the Old Testament. It describes vividly Psalm chapter 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. This goes back to the first Passover in, in uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It says about the Passover lamb, and you shall not break any of its bones. Additionally, Zechariah 12 verse 10 says, When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. So that's Pilate's response. I'm done with Pilate. I don't need to talk about Pilate anymore. Let's go back to Joseph. What did Joseph do? As we bounce back, the first thing that he did is he, he asked for the body of Jesus now we're going to see five additional things that Joseph is going to do. Number one, he bought. Look at verse 46. Yeah, he bought a linen shroud. It says that he bought a linen shroud. Joseph had been blessed financially and was generous with what he had. He goes to the market. He buys the linen. He comes back, and he's going to cover up Jesus. As Jesus just reminds me we go back to the very beginning where we started almost a year ago. Jesus was wrapped in swaddling, swallowing cloths. Now he's going to be wrapped in cloths again. So Joseph bought and then he removed. We read next in verse 46, and, and taking him down, how difficult this must have been to take Jesus off of the cross. One of the things that they would have had to have done is to have removed the five, six, seven, eight-inch spikes that Jesus had been used, that had been used to nail Jesus to the cross. They would have taken his body down and all of that weight and all of that pressure, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually that they must have been going through at that moment. And then he wrapped. We read, Joseph then wrapped him in a linen shroud. He would have first washed the body. We see this in Acts chapter 9, verse 37. And then they would have taken strips of linen and wrapped them around his body. It's at this point that according to John chapter 19, verse 39, that another closet script, uh, Christian we were introduced to back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is, is back on the scene here. We haven't really heard much about Nicodemus. He had, he had become a disciple, he had come to Jesus, and he had talked to Jesus, but that was about it. But now he's going to come back. 
And, and we read here in, in John chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh. Going all the way back to the birthday of Jesus again, right? One of the gifts of the wise men that were presented for him. Just another prophecy looking forward. You see, myrrh was a spice that was used in burial. It was celebrated at Jesus' birth, but it was also foreshadowing of, of what would soon happen. So he comes bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. That's a lot. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to Mary of Bethany after she poured expensive ointment all over him. Mark chapter 14, verse 8 says, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So Joseph bought a shroud. Nicodemus buys all the spices. These aromatic spices were designed to offset the smell of decom. Uh, a, a decaying body, sorry, a decaying body. Leave me alone, no more texts. <laughs> so they would have wrapped him. They would have covered him in all of these spices. They would have wrapped him again. They would have put a shroud around his head. They did this again. We go back to what we talked about at the very beginning. They did this very, very quickly. And we know that they did this quickly, and, and they at least got him into the grave. But we know that the two Marys are going to come back. In, in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, we read, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So we see what Joseph is doing, and now what is Joseph going to do? After he completely, and, and, and if you want to, if you go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, now, that would require you going to Jerusalem. But if you just look up, um, and I can get you a site that can show you all of this, that there is what they believe is the place of Jesus' death upon the cross, um, the, the, the place where there's a stone there that you can go and you can touch, and supposedly it is the stone what they would have taken Jesus. They would have laid him on it. They would have washed his body. They would have wrapped him there. Then they would have picked him up. And they would have carried him directly to the grave. And that's what we come to next. He laid. Joseph laid him in the tomb. After carefully preparing the body, we read, they laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. The body would have been placed on a stone shelf. A, a tomb cut out of rock was also more expensive what we know from Matthew 27, verse 60, that this was Joseph's own tomb and that it was new and laid it in his own new tomb. Now this, again, is significant. Why? Because it fulfills another prophecy for us. But because we go to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, and it says, and they, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. You see, he was crucified on the cross alongside two criminals, but he was buried in a righteous, rich man's tomb. So he lays him in the tomb. Now he rolled. He rolled. After carefully preparing his body, they laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. In verse 46, and he rolled, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Matthew 27, verse 60, adds that it was a great stone. Two 
to four tons. And it would have been placed probably up on a little bit of a hill. It would have been put there, and when they would have removed the wedge out from underneath of it, it would have rolled into place. Now here's the thing. If you're trying to be quiet, if you're trying to steal the body of Jesus, if you go to the right tomb, which was surrounded by soldiers with the seal of Pilate placed upon it, and you're going to try to, shh, don't wake him up. I mean, you can't just move four tons. You, you can't just move 200 pounds without making noise, uh, okay? So all of this to say the disciples who were scared to death, locked in an upper room, didn't go steal the body of Jesus. And I don't really know what Mary and Mary were planning on doing. Or so, may, maybe Mary and Mary weren't that strong, but Salome was. Like she was a bodybuilder and she was good. I don't know what their thoughts were of how they were going to get this, this stone out of the way. But it was a large, great stone. And it is going to be placed in front of the tomb. No one's getting in. The Bible is very, listen, the Bible is very, very clear that Jesus died. The scriptures make it very clear that Jesus was buried. So what do we do with this? I mean, w w when we read this scripture, these, these last several sermons really haven't been ones that you go, yay. It's hard. It's difficult. But we need to know it. We need to understand what our Lord did for us. Now, what do we do? W what, what's left for us? I, I believe that there are two things that we can apply to our lives today. The first one is we need to go public with our private faith. We see this with Joseph. We see this with Nicodemus. Kind of closet Christians up until this point. But at this point, it's now time to go forward. It's now time to step up as Christians. What, what made them want to do this? What was the point that Joseph and Nicodemus said, it's time to come out of the closet and to be the Christian that I'm supposed to be? What made them want to, do, to take their private faith and take it public? Calvary. Plainly put, it was Calvary. That is what transformed them from cowards to men of courage. The same Jesus they were initially afraid to go public about is now offering that pardon. The cross changes people. And I hope and I pray that the cross has changed you. And it's time to share our faith. But what happens if I lo lose my job, Travis? It's okay, you'll find another one. But what happens if my kids get in school in trouble for taking their Bibles to school? It's okay. You have plenty of people that will support you. But what? It's time to step out because the cross is what saves us. Jesus is what saves us. His resurrection is what saves us. And here's the thing: there's going to be a lot that's going to come our way in this world. But it's time to take our faith public. We have to let the cross of Calvary change it, change us. 
we need to not just wear that cross as a symbol around our neck and go, yeah, um, this is what it means. I wear them here. I put a bumper sticker on my car. Do I live it out? Does it really mean something to me? Now, here's the thing. If you have t-shirts that have crosses on them, if you wear a necklace, do it. Stand out. Share it. And when people look at you and go, hey, what's that mean? Why, why do you have that? Well, what's the point of that? Well, let me tell you why. And, and be willing to share your faith. Peter is very adamant about that, that we need to share our faith constantly. Maybe you've given your, your life to Christ, but you're keeping your Christianity quiet in your workplace, on your school campus. Would your coworkers and classmates, would they be shocked to find out that you're a Christian? Please let them know. Doesn't mean that you have to stand on the corner and, and stand on a soapbox and scream and yell at people. That's not going to win people. But be willing to share your faith. And don't be afraid of what this world may throw at you. Joseph was, I think there was still a level of concern there as he stood before Pilate, but yet he chose to. If you're not saved, it's time to openly confess Christ as your Lord and Savior. Don't wait. And then number two, do what you can with all that you have. Now we're introduced to two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, who were pretty wealthy, who were able to give the, the linen cloth, they were able to give their tomb, they were able to buy 75 pounds worth of spices, that they gave what they could and how they were able to give. And then we have the Marys that are coming who are just being consistent with their faith every step of the way. And what I'm telling you to do, what I'm asking you to do today is just be consistent with your faith. You don't have to all of a sudden do miraculous, great, wondrous, all kinds of great gifts. But just be consistent with your faith. Leverage what you can with and, and how you can. Whether the Lord prompts you to do something remarkable or to just be faithful in the routine. Do all you can with all that you have. And do it for His glory. Don't do it for yours. Do it for him that one more person, just one, could be added to the kingdom of God. We're told that when one is saved, the angels rejoice. Just one. You don't have to save the entire world. Just start with one. And that one becomes a ripple effect and you continue to share the gospel message. Be forward, be in forward motion at all times. So here's a question. Are you doing all that you can with all that you have? That's the question. As horrible as the death of Jesus was, it helps us to see the beauty of the empty tomb. When we think about the burial and we think of everything, all of the prep that we've talked about here this morning, when we think about all of that and we allow, allow it to play in our minds, here's the thing, we know that in three days, he's not going to be there. And that's what we have to hold on to. Remember what Jesus has done for you. 
Don't just keep your faith private. Share it with those that are around you. Again, one of the awesome opportunities is for you just to reach out and invite someone to come this evening to be a part of Rise Against Hunger. To take one of the leftover, I think there's eight or nine boxes left out there to take for um, the Operation Christmas Child. And when people see you carrying that box around or why you're buying all of these little gadgets in the store, you get to share with them why you're doing it. Just a simple way to share your faith. We're going to take communion. and As we prepare to take communion, we have it on the sides and in the back. As we prepare to take this, I want you to remember what Jesus did for you. This is very personal. This is a very personal time because you're remembering what Jesus did for you. He chose you. He could have ran to Bethany. At any point in the process of the pain, he could have said, Dad, I'm done. He could have cried out, Abba, come and get me. Yet you were on his mind. And so as we take of this communion, I want you to remember what that means. And if you need to accept him as your personal Lord and Savior, you can do so as well here today. I'm going to be at the back. The elders will be in the back. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, help you work through anything that is going on in your life right now. If you have a decision to make, I ask that you do that as well as we, we, we go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Father, I thank you so much for allowing us to worship you. I thank you for the gift of your son. I thank you for all that you did to bring about our salvation that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The very moment that sin entered into the world, you had a plan. And it culminated with the death of your son. His burial and ultimately, as we look at next week, his resurrection. And so, Father, as we, as we have been walking with you through the Gospel of Mark, I just ask that as we come to this communion time that, that we will reflect upon our lives, that we will remember what you did for us by sending your Son to the cross. And, Father, I just ask that you be with each person that is here, that they will just remember that gift that they will take of these emblems, that they will take of the bread and the juice, that they will remember your death, the death of your son. And Father, if there is someone here who has never accepted you as their Lord and Savior, that while we continue our worship through song and praise, Lord, that they will seek out what it means to give their life over to you. We pray all of this in your son's most holy and precious name. Amen.